Well, morning again, Coro Baptist Church. Um, thank you for the invitation to be with you today to open God's Word. Um, I think one of the most wonderful expressions of partnership in the gospel is spending time in God's Word together. Uh, in Philippians 2, Paul shares with the church how he sent Epaphroditus to share in the work of Christ. And now Paul plans to send Timothy to go to the church in Philippi to share in that work also. Um, it was wonderful at the start of our year in Flinders ES, Ray actually uh, shared with our student leaders. We were planning to come up here, but the weather wasn't good, so he came down the hill. And now I understand why he came down the hill being here today. Uh, but it was wonderful to have Ray with us to open the word and to remind us of the centrality of the cross of Christ for our lives as believers and not just our message, um, but the journey we are on. Um, so it's wonderful to be here today to just rekindle and deepen that partnership in the gospel that we share. Um, and today in our sermon, I particularly want to pick up on the theme of why is the ministry of the word and particularly that work of proclaiming the gospel so central and essential to our lives, uh, whether as individuals, whether to our families, to our local churches or the ministries we partner with. Why is the word central and primary and have, has a special place? Now, as I talked to Nat this week, uh, Nat gave me permission, I think, reading between the lines just to preach for as long as I wanted to. So thank you, Nat, for, for that permission. Uh, but he said how Coro is a church that values the word. And I think that's a wonderful value for any church to have. Every church should have that value, shouldn't they? Yeah. Um, but we should never assume this value or never just assume we value the word. We should know why we value the word. Why does so much of our church life, when we gather on a Sunday, when we meet midweek, when we catch up one-to-one, why is that centered around the Bible? If you're a parent here today uh, with young children, why at the end of your day when you're tired and you really want to put your feet up, I know this, we've got three young kids under five, why do you still open that kid's Bible and read those words to your children? If you're a teenager, why do you have a Bible reading app on your phone? And why do you maybe even work through a plan that doesn't just give you the memory verse for the day, but helps you understand large parts of scripture? For each one of us, why do we commit time in our life to regularly read the word, even when we're busy, even when we don't feel like it? Well, as we look at Mark 4 today, I will see that the word, and particularly the work, I think, of proclaiming the gospel is so important to our lives, not just as individuals, as families, local churches, but to something much bigger, to the kingdom of God. Now, before we begin, though, and open up Mark 4, I might just pray for us once more. Uh, please join with me. Our gracious Father, uh, we just pray today that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Help us to see Jesus clearly today. We pray that you would help us to hear, to listen, and to accept your word, and that you would continue your work in our lives, producing great fruit for your glory. Amen. Uh, now, today's Bible reading, uh, we heard four parables that Jesus taught on the kingdom of God. Um, now, I did university-level maths, but I still can't figure out how to turn four parables into a three-point sermon. The maths just doesn't work out 
But what we're going to do today is actually focus most of our time on thinking about the parable of the sower, the first one that was read. And part of the reason for that is that in Mark 4, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? This is the parable of parables, I think. Um, But before we jump into it, it's actually worth considering where it is in Mark's gospel. Um, Now, if you're not familiar with Mark's gospel, um, can I just say it's one of my favorites. I do have an engineering background and I love Mark because he is clear and concise. In chapter one, verse one, he doesn't muck around. He gives you the executive summary of his gospel. He says, this is what my gospel was about. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. So as you read Mark's gospel, it is there to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. He's king, the long promised king to the people of Israel who would rule the nations. And he is the son of God, the one who would have a unique relationship with the father and authority from there. In the gospel, the first words we hear Jesus say that Mark records for us are in verse 16. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus proclaims this good news in the gospel, we see a hugely divided response to him. Some people are just amazed as they hear Jesus's words, as they see his authority, his claim to forgive sin, his claim even to be Lord of the Sabbath. People just marvel and are in awe of who this man could be. But then there are others. They hear the same words They see the same miracles and they just want to shut Jesus down. Just in chapter one to three, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians already plotting how they might kill Jesus. We see Jesus's biological family think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. We see the teachers of the law even call Jesus demon possessed. Mark is an action packed gospel. First three chapters, we see some remarkable things of who Jesus is. We see some remarkable claims to his authority and identity. And we see a remarkably divided response. Awe and wonder, opposition. And at this point in Mark's gospel, he records Jesus's parables for us. And I think he does so deliberately because it helps us understand why there's such a divided response to the word Jesus is proclaiming. But more importantly, actually, as we read Mark's gospel, it challenges us to how are we responding to Jesus and what he is proclaiming. And I think that's true whether it's the first time you've read the gospel or whether it's the hundredth time. Uh, The parables challenge us to consider how am I responding to Jesus and his word today? Now, if you've brought your Bible, please keep it open. Um, I'll just be working through the passage in Mark 4 and I want you to follow along. Check what I'm saying against the scripture. If anything doesn't agree, disregard. But open your Bibles to Mark 4, um, and we'll just work through the parables today. In verse 1, we see that the crowds are flocking to Jesus. People are hearing about who he is, what he's doing, and they're wanting to find out more. There's so many people. He actually has to get out in a boat on a lake so they could all hear. And Jesus decides to teach them in parables. Um, I love the Bible reading today. Thank you for emphasizing, listen. It's so often missed in this parable, but Jesus starts by saying, listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. 
Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched and they withered. They had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they didn't bear grain. Still other fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop. Some multiplying 30, some 60 and some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now I suspect for us here today and many people that have spent time in the Bible, this is a really familiar parable, isn't it? It's one of the big ones. If there's the big three, this would definitely be in there. And I think part of the reason is that it's just so simple and memorable, isn't it? One farmer, lots of seed, four soils, four results. But as we slow down, aren't some of the details of this parable a bit unusual? Why does this farmer throw seed on bad soil? Why are you throwing seed on a path? Maybe actually for us here today, it's just a parable from a different time. You know, if Jesus was walking the earth today, he wouldn't bother sowing seeds. He'll just go down to Bunnings, buy the plants you need. You can even get the good soil down there. Maybe we'd call it the parable of the good consumerist. Uh, But even though this parable is from a different time and might not be something we're that familiar with in terms of agricultural farming, we still get it today, don't we? And it's really memorable to us. But I think because it's so memorable and because it's so familiar, it's so easy to switch off to it, isn't it? Um, But we often miss how important Jesus' beginning and ending of this parable are. He emphasises, listen. He concludes, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus doesn't do this for all his parables. This one particularly, though, he wants to draw our attention to make sure we're listening carefully. I already shared this, but when he was with his disciples later and they asked him about the parable, Jesus showed us how important listening, understanding, and I think responding to this parable is. Verse 13, don't you understand this parable? How will you understand any? So the parable of the sower isn't just a story or another parable. I think it's the parable of parables. It's so important for us to hear this one, to understand and to respond. And I think we see it's so important that Jesus himself provides the interpretation. Um, Sometimes, I don't know if you find this, but when I read parables in the Bible, I can find them a bit tricky. What details are meant to correspond to different things? What is the point of this parable? Are there little ideas or is there a big idea I'm meant to take away from it? But in this parable, it's so significant that Jesus himself records the response for us. He gives us the interpretation. In verse 14, he tells us that the farmer sows the word. The seed in the parable of the sower represents the word. The question is, what is the word? Is it Jesus's words to people in the first century? Do we make a big jump and say it's all of scripture, which is the inspired word of God? Um, I think we need to think about it in terms of Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, I think it's referring to the word about Jesus, the message of who he is and what he has come to do. It's the good news he's been preaching, that the kingdom of God has come near. At the start of the gospel, we see That this good news includes includes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And by implication, I think it includes the mission of this Messiah who would die as a ransom for the sins of his people and be raised to glorious new life. Throughout the New Testament, actually, it's quite common to see the gospel and God's word used interchangeably. In 2, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, after sharing what the gospel is in verse 8, Paul immediately calls it God's word, something that cannot be chained. Uh, when writing to the Thessalonian church, Paul talks about their reception to the gospel not being that of a human word, but as it truly is, God's word. So in the parable of the sower, when Jesus talks about the word, I think he's particularly highlighting how people are responding to him, the message of who he is and what he has come to do. The first response we see in verse 15, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. We live um, in a culture today uh, that is pretty sceptical of miraculous and supernatural things um, and even further mocks the idea of Satan. I remember working as an engineer and some of my colleagues just finding it so ridiculous that Christians would believe in something called Satan. The New Testament authors were not embarrassed to talk about Satan. Uh, we see Peter, James and John all warn Christians to be on guard, to resist him, to not be unaware of his schemes. Uh, in the Bible, we see actually Satan is the great enemy of God and his people. In Genesis 3, he is that serpent that tempted humanity to doubt God's word. I was asked actually um, by a student at our mid-year camp a few weeks back um, if I've ever experienced Satan opposing me. I was just trying to have lunch. It was a very left-field question. <laughs> and um, I think I was a bit surprised by the question, but he was even more surprised by my response when I said, yes. He's like, oh, when did it happen? What did you see? I'm like, I haven't seen Satan, but I'm tempted to doubt God's word. I'm tempted to doubt if it's true at times, if it's good. It's one of the key ways Satan works to take away the word of God that is sown in us. That's what we see in Mark 4. Um, last year on campus, uh, a Christian student uh, told me that one of their classmates had agreed to catch up to read the Bible with him. Uh, and this, he, the Christian student told me that his response to his classmate was, watch out. Over the next couple of weeks, you will not believe how difficult it will be for us to catch up to read the Bible. And the reason for that? Satan doesn't want to hear you about uh, he, Satan doesn't want you to hear about Jesus. I don't know if that was the best thing to lead with to his non-Christian classmate to tell him about Satan and how Satan doesn't want him to hear the gospel, but there's something true about it. Satan looks to take away the word before it's sown and can produce fruit. That's response one. Response two, Jesus says, is other soil in verse sixteen. Like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Why doesn't the word produce fruit other times? Well, it's not just because life is tough or there's distractions out there. But Jesus says, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. If we ever preach a gospel that says, believe in Jesus, follow him, 
your life will be so much easier and better. We have to wonder if that's actually a true gospel. Sure, there is great joy in believing in Jesus. You know, there's hope, there's life, there's thanksgiving, there's joy, there's great blessing. There's a new family that you get. There's also trouble and persecution that will come. On campus, one of um, the great joys we have is working alongside people who are first-generation Christians, the first people in their biological family to put their faith in Jesus. And um, I've got to say, it's pretty tough for them. It's pretty costly. Because uh, I think the best-case scenario for them is that the people, their mums and dads, their brothers and sisters, simply just don't get the most core part of their identity and who they are. At worst, actively opposed. They get kicked out of home. They have to find a new place to live. That happens here in Adelaide. Each one of us, though, will experience cost in following Jesus. For each one of us, the word will bring trouble and persecution in some way. It will look different. It's not going to look the same for each of us, but that cost will be there. In Mark 8, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Are you ready for trouble and persecution to come because of the word? Don't be surprised. If we have no root, Jesus warns us that we might quickly fall away. Response three, Jesus says in verse 18, Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus says that for others, when they hear the word, it doesn't produce fruit because other things come in and choke it out. And doesn't Jesus highlight three timeless things? Isn't this remarkable? This was 2,000 years ago he spoke these words. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and simply the desires for other things. There's so many everyday worries that occupy our minds. I actually think we're living in a time where the everyday worries are pushed on us so much. We have an endless news cycle. News is just making you worry. Worry about things happening in your life now. Worry about things happening in the world. And we're exposed and encouraged to be worried, I think, in the world today. I know, I've been sitting there in the congregation, hearing the preacher on a Sunday, and my mind has just drifted to the week ahead. What have I got on? I've got my calendar. How am I going to fit that task in? I'm meant to be hearing the word and responding to it, but I'm thinking of something else. The worries of this life can choke out the word. Or is it the deceitfulness of wealth? We live in a world that constantly encourages us to find our security and our happiness in our wealth and the things it can buy us. One of the great ambitions of our day is the pursuit of wealth. Uh, this hit home to me actually a few years ago. I was at Marion. Uh, I went down to see a movie. I don't go to the movies regularly. Um, but I love when I go to the movies that you get ads for other movies beforehand. They're like a bit of a mini movie. Um, but I found out recently that they've changed this and they just do general ads at the movies now. It's really disappointing. Um, but this day I was there at the movies and one of those super fund ads came on. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but it's one of those ads that says if you're with our super fund, you're going to retire with this much, but oh, if you're with one of the other super funds, it's going to be like that. 
Did I go to the movies wanting to think about my wealth and my financial position? No, I went to see a movie. But that's our world. We're constantly being messaged to find our security in our wealth, to find our happiness in the things it can buy us. Yet Jesus warns us, wealth is deceitful. But secondly, it can choke out the world, the word, making it unfruitful. Um, earlier this year, actually, I had the great privilege of catching up with a pastor from Ukraine. Um, when the war started over there, by God's providence, he was out of the country for three days. Um, so he's actually been um, just further north in one of the countries, just above Ukraine, working, helping refugees. Uh, but he came to Australia because he has family over here and he was just sharing about some of their work. Um, and as we talked, he shared a bit about the state of Christianity in Ukraine. And he said before the war, more and more people were just become, becoming hardened to the gospel. And part of that was just that Western mindset of pursuing wealth, consumerism, building up your life and the material things you can have now. But he said since the war, there has been such an openness in his country to the gospel. Because the things people have put their hope in have been shown to be so flimsy. Material things of this world are here one day and can be gone the next. Is the deceitfulness of wealth choking out the word in our lives? And the third thing Jesus warns us is just simply the desire for other things. Actually, what is our greatest love? What is the thing we most want in this world? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Response four, Jesus tells us in verse 20, others like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Uh, Now, when you open up Bible commentaries um, on this passage, uh, there's a lot of mess you have to sort through because the commentators love to argue. You know, obviously soil four is a good soil, Soil one, that's a bad soil, but you know, maybe soils two and three, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe they're sort of just Christians being a bit unproductive and they just need a bit of a jolt, but they miss the point. Jesus isn't encouraging us to be soil two or three. Respond to the word. Be the good soil. Those who hear the word, who accept it and who have a crop produced in their life. I think the response Jesus is calling for to the word is what we saw in Mark chapter one repent, turn back to God and believe the good news about his son. Accept the message of the gospel of who Jesus is and be transformed by it. As we hear this parable today, I want to highlight just two dangers. And I highlight these dangers knowing I myself feel these dangers. Um, The first is to be a parable spectator. I find the parable of the sower so remarkable because I can think of people in my life who I love dearly who are sitting in each of those soils at the moment. And it's really easy to hear this parable and just simply think of other people and how they're responding to the word, which is ridiculous because this parable so clearly calls me to listen, whoever has ears to hear. So the first thing to do today is to examine how am I responding to the gospel this day? True, I may have accepted it in the past, but am I still believing in Jesus, turning to him, repenting of my sin? Second danger, um, I think for us today, is to simply say, I'm a Christian, therefore I must be the good soil, move on, next parable. Slow down, let's take this parable to heart, 
to examine our lives, our hearts, and to consider how we're responding. As I think of these parables in the different soils and ask that question, what is the biggest danger to me? I think it's soil three. Because life can just be so good and comfortable these days in Australia. It can be so easy to be captivated by other things, to be burdened by the everyday worries, to be caught up in the pursuit of wealth, that my life becomes unfruitful. If that's the danger or the problem, what's the gospel solution? Well, I think it's related to what Jesus tells us about the secret of the kingdom of God. Did you hear those verses in the middle? In verse 10, when Jesus was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, when you read that for the first time, and maybe as you heard it today, I'm sure that raises questions for people because it kind of sounds like Jesus says he's talking in parables so people won't understand and they won't be forgiven, which just seems so opposite to what Jesus is on about in his life. Uh, But it's worth recognizing, as we did in the Bible reading, that Jesus here is quoting Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. If you're not familiar with the start of Isaiah, The first five chapters are actually about the Lord confronting his people, Israel, about their ongoing idolatry and just rebellion. Year after year, prophet after prophet, the people of Israel had rejected the word of the Lord. Actually, in Isaiah chapter five, the Lord likens his people to a vineyard, but a vineyard that just produced bad fruit. Chapter 6, the Lord calls Isaiah to go to his people to pronounce judgment upon them. And in quoting this passage, what I think Jesus is doing is highlighting that this pattern of unbelief from God's people that was happening in Isaiah's day is happening in his as well. We've seen that in Mark's gospel, that the religious leaders have called him demon-possessed, are plotting to take his life. But here they're not just rejecting a prophet or another messenger, They're rejecting their Messiah. The Son of God is the one they're refusing. Parables aren't just good stories that are memorable, but they're messages that cause us to respond. They really push us at a level of personal will and belief to respond, not just about intellectual understanding. And Jesus himself calls the crowds whoever has ears, who's hearing this message today, to respond. What parables do, I think, is they reveal and they reinforce our response to Jesus, and particularly the parable of the sower. When I was reading uh, Mark 4 with Ash on campus this year, that non-believing fella, the temperature was raised because he realised that he has to respond to Jesus can't sit on the fence with him and he knows how he responds to the word he has heard will be reinforced if he rejects what he's heard he'll be hardened in his disbelief but at the same time if he responds and puts his trust in jesus that's going to completely turn his life upside down he will be transformed by that news 
parables will reveal and reinforce our response to Jesus. There's no mild change on the table here. And in verse 11, did you notice that actually Jesus has told his disciples that the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to them? What is the secret? I think back to Mark 1 verse 1. Jesus is king. He's the Messiah, the son of God. And the disciples hadn't fully comprehended that news yet. They hadn't identified it, but they had responded to Jesus in part. They had left their fishing nets, tax collecting to follow Jesus. Over time, they would keep responding and Peter would cry out in Mark 8 that you're the Messiah. They still wouldn't really get what it was, though, until he walked that road to the cross and rose again. And actually, in Mark 9, we see that the secret is only to be there until Jesus has finished his mission, until he's walked that road to the cross to die as a ransom. And once the Messiah has finished that mission, that message is to be proclaimed. There is no secret to the kingdom of God today. Jesus is king. He has died for the sins of his people and he's been raised to glorious new life. Actually, I think in the next parable, we get a hint of that when Jesus says, do you bring in a lamp to put under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. The context is the kingdom of God. The secret is to be made known. And when we hear that news that Jesus is king, and when we accept and respond to that, that is what's key to being the good soil. That is the news that will transform our lives and produce great fruit for God's glory. Because when we genuinely acknowledge Jesus as our king, we'll not fall away when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. Because we know our king, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We know our king has walked this path of suffering before us and now is exalted to the highest place at the father's right hand. And we know that if we are to follow him as our king, he calls us to walk that path after him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. When we acknowledge Jesus as our king, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things will not choke out the word. Because we know we can't serve two masters. And we know that money is a terrible master. 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus is a much better master than money will ever be. The secret of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is king. He's a good king. He's a powerful king is wonderful news. And it's actually news that anyone who was on the outside, who hears and who responds, becomes an insider. Isn't that remarkable? When Paul in Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says it's because it's the power of God which brings salvation to everyone who believes. And God's kingdom grows as this message is proclaimed, that Jesus is king. Did you hear in the third parable in verses 26 to 29, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. 
All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. What does the farmer do in this parable? Simply sow the seed. And it grows without anything else he does. That's our work today as followers of King Jesus. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We share that gospel. And then we relax, knowing only God can bring the growth from that message. So back to that original question today. Why is the ministry of the word, and particularly that work of proclaiming the gospel over and over, whether to ourselves as individuals, whether to our families, whether in our local church every Sunday, every midweek meeting, or whether with those organisations we partner with in the gospel. Why? Why is that so central? Because it's the way God has chosen to work in his world today. As we await Jesus' return, he's given his people that work of proclaiming this message of sowing that seed. And that's how God works. As that message is proclaimed by his spirit, he brings life. People see more of the beauty of who he is, just of the depth of his love of what he would do for us in Jesus, the gospel of his son. And finally, the last parable, the parable of the mustard seed, verse 30 to 34. The seed is something really unimpressive, isn't it? It's the smallest of seeds. And I think for our world, as they consider the gospel, sometimes it's just so unimpressive. Jesus, the man who was despised and rejected, abandoned on the cross. Something that seems so small and so insignificant will turn out to be something remarkable that he's been exalted to the highest place and one day will be worshipped from people from every tribe, nation and language. This is what God is doing in his world today. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? So that more people would enter his kingdom, would hear the gospel, would hear the word and would respond and be transformed by it. Being just like that seed sown on the good soil that hears the word accepts it and produces a crop and if this is what god is doing in his world today it should be the thing that's central to our purpose and our hearts we all have a different role to play in that Uh, but this work of sowing the word should be our priority as well let's pray father we just thank you today as we uh, are reminded of the way that you work by your word, and particularly by the proclamation of the gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's this message and the work of your Spirit as we respond that brings life. We thank you that you've brought us out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom you love, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, today we just want to pause and thank you for those who have proclaimed the word to us whether that was our parents, whether that was our pastor or someone else in our life that you play sovereignly. We just want to thank you for them and for the way that you chose in your uh, sovereign will to work through them, uh, that we would hear this message and be transformed by it. Father, we pray that you would continue your work in our lives today, that you would continue to help us to respond to that message that Jesus is King, that we would be that good soil that hears your word, that accepts it 
and is transformed by it. We pray this, Lord, that our lives would be pleasing to you, bearing great fruit for your glory. Father, give us courage, wisdom, perseverance and joy as we join in that work too of sowing the seed, of proclaiming the gospel to others. Um, Help us to depend upon your power for that work, Lord. And we pray that through that, that we would see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen.